0: Welcome to the Vintage Church podcast. Vintage Church is a movement of truth, love, and community. For more information, visit VintageChurchNola.com. Here is this week's message. Good morning. Welcome to Vintage. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. And we are kicking off a brand new series this morning called Prosperous or prosper us or prosperous, however you want to read that. And yes, we are talking about money for the next four weeks. Anybody excited? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought, right? How many of you, you think about money on a daily basis? How many of you love to think about money on a daily basis? Yeah, that's what I thought, right? I don't even like to talk about money with my wife, right? I mean, that's just reality for me personally. But here's the, here's the thing about money, right? Money is a reality that every single one of us deal with. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about money. And I think the reason that the Bible has a lot to say about money Is not so we would be wealthy or we would be, you know, people who think about money constantly. But I think the reason the Bible has a lot to say about money is because money has something to tell us about our hearts. You know, in in our lives, a lot of times it's very difficult to discern or even understand, even for our own selves how our hearts are actually doing. How we're actually doing as followers of Jesus or if we're moving toward Jesus. But what we do with our money will show us and show other people what our hearts actually look like. And so the next four weeks, we're gonna be in this series that we're calling Prosperous and we're gonna be looking at what does it actually mean to prosper in life. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 over these next four weeks. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 8 starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, lift up your hand. Our Connect team would love to get you a copy of God's Word as our gift from us to you. But as we think about money, right, part of what, when we think about prosperity, right, or prospering, what we think about is what the beginning of that little video just showed you, right? It's collecting and hoarding as much of the resource as we possibly can, right? To be prosperous means to have as much as you can have, right? Well, the Bible, I think, has a very different perspective on what it actually looks like to be prosperous, right? You see at the very end of that video, right? You're collecting, collecting, collecting. And then you knock the jar over and the resources are spread out. And I actually think what we're going to see over the next four weeks is what the Bible tells us is that prosperity has more to do with not hoarding your resources, but giving your resources away. Another way to think about it is this. God prospers us not for greed, but for generosity. God prospers us not for greed, but for generosity. In thinking about prospering or prosperity, this week I looked up what does it mean or what does it take to be wealthy. And here's some generational stats for you to think about. The Gen Zers, it takes 1.49 million to be considered wealthy. According to millennials, it takes 1.94 million to be wealthy. The Gen Xers, it takes 2.53 million to be considered wealthy. And the boomers, it takes 2.63 million to be wealthy. Do you notice how those numbers just keep climbing, right, with every different generation? Here's what's interesting. According to the Federal Reserve, the average U.S. household net worth is only $692,100. Some of you are like, really? Because I don't have that, right? <laughs> but even that number is very different from the numbers I just shared with you of what people think it means to be wealthy or prosperous. And I think that that shows us something about how we think about and how we view money. Montre was just sharing with you about our upcoming equip night that we're calling Making Space. Tuesday night, September seventeenth, right here from six to eight thirty. And what I'm most excited about that night is that I'm doing nothing but sitting back and listening and learning. I'm doing no teaching. Why? Because you don't want me to teach you about the practicality of money, because that's not my expertise at all. So what we have done is we've brought in financial experts that are a part of our church. Sarah Bricketto. Who's a CPA, Steve Ackman, who who does a lot of investing, and then Mike DeYoung, who's also in investing. And then we've got two panels of financial experts who are gonna be with us to talk about finances. But a few weeks ago, when we were sitting down to talk about that equip night, this is something that Mike DeYoung said that I think speaks to the power of money, but also the danger at the same time. He said this money is a terrible God but a wonderful servant. It's a terrible God, but a wonderful servant. And I think that's exactly what we are going to see over the next few weeks as we look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 together. Let's read this together, and then I want to give you just a little bit of context to help understand what's happening in 2 Corinthians. Paul writes this. He says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, before we look deeper into this passage, let me help you understand some things regarding what's going on, particularly in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, right? This is a part of a bigger letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in. Corinth, right? The apostle Paul was a traveling uh, church planner. He started churches everywhere. He was a persecutor of Christians and then Jesus appeared to him and saved him and then he started making churches. And 2 Corinthians is has a lot of different t- topics and content to it. And in chapters 8 and 9, Paul stops specifically to talk about this issue of the collection. And that's what we're going to be looking at. So Paul wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia as a response to Titus's report. Titus was a traveling companion of Paul's. Titus had been to Corinth, and then he came back to Paul. So this gives you a little bit of an idea, right? Paul's somewhere here in Macedonia, which, who are the churches he's referring to? The churches in Macedonia, right? So he is there, and he's writing to the church at Corinth. So he's here somewhere, and he's writing to this church here in Corinth. This is his second letter that we have from him. The, the Corinthians, we don't really know why, but the Corinthians, for some reason, had neglected the collection. So a year ago, Paul had went to Corinth and said, hey, Corinthians, I want you to take up a collection, an offering for the church at Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. And they were really excited about it. They had a desire to do it, and they started to do it, but then they stopped doing it. And so Paul is writing in chapters 8 and 9 to encourage them to pick back up where they had started. The collection for the church at Jerusalem uh, has a lot of different moving pieces to it. Okay, the church in Jerusalem was poor compared to the Greco-Roman world, compared to the churches in the uh, Asia Minor area in in Greece. It was poorer. In fact, Jerusalem had experienced a famine during the reign of Emperor Claudius, somewhere between A.D. 41 and A.D. 54. And so what Paul was, everywhere he went, this wasn't just true for Corinth, it was true for every church. Everywhere Paul went, he encouraged these Gentile Christians, these Gentile churches to take up an offering for the Jerusalem church. And why did he do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons why? Number one, I think there's the general biblical concern for the poor. If you go and read the Old Testament, you are going to see time and time again that the, the, the Moses and, and God speaking through Moses encourages the people of Israel to care for the poor among them. Number two, I think Paul is referring to the collection as part of his part of our worship, right? That when we would give to care for these other Christians, we're actually worshiping God. It's like offering our own sacrifice. And third, there's an element where Paul is concerned about the unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians. So there's a big difference, right? Jesus was Jewish, right? The Christians became Jewish Christians, but then Paul took the gospel to people who weren't Jews, And one of the most important things that Paul was concerned about was bridging the gap between these two groups of people. He wanted the church to be seen not as a Jewish church, not as a Gentile church, but as the church of Jesus Christ. And so he's concerned and he thinks one of the best ways that he can do that is by having these Gentile Christians care for these Jewish Christians. So that gives you a little bit of context surrounding all of this. Now, the question I want us to think about this morning, right, if we're talking about prosperity, what does it actually look like to prosper? That's what I want us to think about. What does it mean to prosper biblically? What does prosperity actually look like? So number one, prosperity is a gift from God. Look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Do you see where Paul begins all of this? He doesn't say, hey, look at how incredibly generous the church at Macedonia was. What's the source of the church at Macedonia's generosity? It's God, right? He's the source. Now, what's funny here is Paul, it, there's a reason Paul brings up the Macedonian church. I mean, he's wanting to spark a little uh, healthy competition among these churches, right? I mean, if you have kids, or maybe growing up, your parents did this, right? Listen, your brother is doing this, or your sister is doing this. Or listen, your friends, they like to clean their rooms. Wouldn't you like to clean your own room, right? I mean, that's, that's literally, literally, that's what Paul is doing. Hey, Corinthians... Look at how awesome the Macedonians are doing at being faithful to the Lord. Don't you want to be like them? I know, We would never think Paul would do something like that. But he's, in a very healthy way, showing them and encouraging them to be like the Macedonians. But he's not going to say they were able to do this because of their own power or their own wealth. He starts with saying, listen, their generosity, first and foremost is from God. God is the reason they were able to be generous. The word grace, right? It comes from the Greek word charis. And what's interesting, right? When we think about grace, what we immediately think about, if you raised or grew up in the church or you're a Christian, we think about salvation, right? That we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. And that's important because grace is our, or it's God's, unconditional benevolence toward us, right? The reality of salvation, we think about salvation. There's nothing that we have done to earn God's love or salvation, right? It is simply his grace that has saved us. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing you did or have done or will do to deserve that gift. That is God's unconditional favor on our lives. Now, when we think about that, though, we've got to be careful to recognize that God's grace is evident in so many other areas of our life. That word charis in the first century had a broad range of meaning from things like attractiveness, charm, thankfulness, gift, or favor. And so the idea that Paul is trying to get across here is that, listen, the grace of God was extended to the Macedonian churches, and then they extended that gift of grace or that favor to the church of Jerusalem through their generosity. But what Paul gets at, again, is that this prosperity was not of their own. This generosity wasn't of their own. This is a concept found throughout the Bible. When, when, when David is about to die, but he's still collecting the resources. King David, he's collecting the resources for the building of the temple. He collects all of these resources, and then he offers a prayer to the Lord in 1 Chronicles twenty nine fourteen. Look at what David says. But who am I, and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Now, what is he saying? Hey, we've been pretty generous, God. Right now, you could read that and be like, man, people of Israel, look at them getting it. But look at what he says at the end of this verse. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. You see, what what David and what Paul and literally what is is an understanding and a teaching from Genesis to Revelation of the Bible is that every single thing belongs to God, right? That you and I, when we think about our money or we think about our stuff or our possessions, when we think about our very lives, what we think about is that we own it right that we are the owners of our stuff. No one's going to tell me what to do with my money. No one's going to tell me what to do with my possessions. No one's going to tell me what to do with my life. But what the Bible actually says is that you and I, we are not owners. We're simply managers. I mean, think about if you're working at a company and you go into the company and you don't like the way that the owner of the company is using his resources or running the company. And what you do as a manager, you come in and you begin to reallocate those resources to other parts of the company. Do you think you're going to keep your job for very long? (laughs) No, you're not, right? Or, you know, my wallet needs more money than this business needs. I think I'll take that money, right? You're not going to keep your job for very long. Why? Because you're not the owner. You're the manager. And one of the most important things that we have to understand when it comes to our money or our resources is they're not ours. Prosperity is a gift from God. So what that means is that God prospers us not for greed, but for generosity. God prospers us not for greed, but for generosity. So what does it mean to prosper? Yes, beginning with prosperity is a gift from God, but Paul continues and he says this, prosperity can occur in difficult circumstances. This is very unique and I think different for us in our context. We wouldn't say prosperity comes in difficult context, but look at what happens to the church at Macedonia starting in verse 2. Paul says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, there's some words in this, in this one verse that don't make sense together, right? I mean, think about this. Would you ever put together a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty with abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity, I mean, in, in, in my mind, those words just don't, they don't work together, right? Because if I'm experiencing affliction and a severe case of poverty, then I'm not experiencing all that much joy, and I'm probably not thinking about being all that generous. But what Paul shows us is how even in difficult circumstances, we can still be generous people. The idea of the Macedonians experiencing extreme poverty. It's it's thinking about it like this, that they were rock-bottom poor. Rock-bottom poverty. And yet Paul can say they were generous. And in this context, in the the ancient world, that didn't make sense. Look at what one author says about giving in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. In the Greco-Roman world, giving was the purview of the wealthy. Were the Macedonians wealthy? No. Were the Macedonians wealthy? Okay, good. I'm just making sure you're with me. In the Greco-Roman world, giving was the purview of the wealthy, whose giving is attested as largely benefiting fellow elites who had passed a stringent worthiness test. Here in Macedonia, we have people from the Greco-Roman world acting out of character for their natural heritage, but very much in character with respect to their adopted heritage. You see, the Macedonians weren't acting like regular first century Greco-Roman citizens. They were acting like Christians. They weren't wealthy, yet they were being generous. And, and if you were to look at the on the outside, looking in, the circumstances surrounding the Jerusalem church, you certainly wouldn't consider the Jerusalem church to be worthy of their generosity. But what the macedonians understood was that what they were responsible to be is generous people because god owns everything that they have they're not owners they're simply managers even in difficult circumstances jesus had a, a similar experience that we read about in luke 21 It's about the widow's might that some of you might be familiar with. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, like literally two pennies. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, in our world, again, just try to just read the, this this is one of the important things you can do as as someone who's reading the Bible or considering Christianity or as a Christian, read the Bible with fresh eyes. I mean, this passage doesn't make sense. How can this woman be more generous than all of the wealthy people who put in their offering? Think about what Paul is saying. How can the Macedonians be more generous than the Corinthians? Because what he's trying to say is chances are the Macedonians were far more impoverished and therefore not as likely to give a large gift compared to the Corinthians who were wealthy and probably could give a larger gift. Yet he would still say, just like Jesus would say about the widow, that she was more generous than the wealthy. And I think what Paul is trying to show us, what Jesus is trying to show us is this. Number one, if you wait till you have money to be generous, you'll never be generous. If you wait to have money to be generous, you'll never be generous. Why? Because generosity is not about how much money you have. It's about the state of your heart. Plain and simple. It doesn't matter, right? The Macedonians were poor. Their gift was probably going to be less than the Corinthians. The the widow was poor. The wealthy gave more. But the issue of generosity is not about how much money you have, but how willing you are to let go of that money. Number two, generosity, we say this often at Vintage, is not about equal giving. Generosity is about equal sacrifice and that's what paul is showing us here in second corinthians 8 what he's trying to say is listen the macedonians they're poor but i've asked them and they have willingly wanted to be a part of this collection and listen they're probably not going to give as much as you corinthians but both of you are responsible to be generous for this work and so the last thing that we need to do, you and I need to do, in thinking about generosity is look at how much money we have and say, listen, if I give X amount, that's just not going to cut it. Because listen, in the, the Bible is completely lopsided and upside down when it comes to generosity in comparison to our world. Because in our world and in our culture, what we think about is generosity equals how much money you give. But that's not the biblical understanding of generosity. The biblical understanding of generosity is you have this much that God has given you, simply be generous with it. The amount, it's less less about the amount and more about the heart, the why you're giving. That's what it means to be generous. And so as Christians, we are supposed to, regardless our circumstances, regardless of whether we're rich or we're poor, be generous with what the Lord has given us because it's all his to begin with. God prospers us not for greed, but for generosity. Third, what does it mean to prosper? Prosperity is joyful, voluntary generosity. Look at what Paul says in verses two through four. For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed, in a wealth of generosity on their part for they gave according to their means as i can testify and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints now there's a lot going on here that honestly we don't necessarily see and some of that's because of the you know things get lost in translation some things i want you to see there's, there's a word, there's two words in this passage that Paul's going to use again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Abundance and overflow. And he talks about this word constantly in this passage. They come from the same root word. And the idea, how many of you have ever been to um, the Audubon Zoo and the, uh, the cool zoo part? Man, you guys you need to get out more, you know. Even if you don't have kids, it's fun. You should go, right? They have this big thing in the middle that's got this big albino alligator and it's got this bucket that fills up periodically and then if you're standing over it, it dumps over you, right? It's, that's the idea, that abundance or overflow, literally that a bucket would be filling up to where it can't hold anymore and it would just overflow on you. That's the idea that Paul is referring to here. Some other words, the, the idea of favor. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That word is the same word that we get grace from, charis. So literally, Paul says in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. And then in verse 4, the Macedonians have begged us earnestly for the favor or the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. They wanted to be a part of the opportunity to expand and extend God's grace through financial giving to them. Taking part, where they they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The word taking part, those two words, comes from the Greek word koinonia. And the word koinonia typically is translated fellowship. It's where we talk about community, But what I think is interesting here is they wanted to be a part of a fellowship that extended beyond themselves. It wasn't just about the community. They might not ever even meet the people that they were giving to. The point was that their desire for community would move into action. And then lastly, the word relief. That word is the Greek word diakonia, which is is the word we use for deacons. Or the idea of ministry or service. Service. All of this, I think, shows us that God had worked in the church to also work through the church. God had extended his grace to the Macedonians, and what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians, God has extended his grace to the Corinthians that that grace might then be extended through those churches to other people, which led the Macedonians to give joyfully. This wasn't a burden. Right if you look at the end of verse 4 they were the ones begging Paul Paul had asked them hey listen i'd really love for you to be a part of this relief effort but Paul didn't have to like begrudgingly come to them and say you're not giving they wanted to be a part of this so it was voluntary it was joyful they wanted it and they were joyful at the response of giving right how many times have you been joyful every time i say we'd like you to give that's kind of a joke, right? But I mean, when we think about when we ask people like to give back to the church, right? I mean, what's the first thought in your mind? Oh man, I'm trying to take more of my money. They want my money. Well, how did the Macedonians respond? With joy. It was voluntary. Paul didn't have to force them. And then it was generous, even in the midst of their extreme poverty. Their extreme poverty and their affliction overflowed into a wealth of generosity. I think all of this, though, kind of points at the key to generosity. The key to generosity is the heart. In his book, The Treasure Principle, we have two resources out in our resource center that I would encourage you to pick up. One is The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Very basic but good book on biblical principles of money. And then The Money Challenge by Art Rayner. This is a super practical book. How do you deal with debt, saving, generosity, those sorts of things. But in Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle, he says this about money and the heart. As surely as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. I think Jesus said something about that, right? Money leads hearts follow. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy. I think this is so interesting that in in literally one chapter, he says something about money to almost two different groups of people. The issue for Paul is not money. Being wealthy is not a sin. Being poor is not a sin. It's our heart. Look at what he says, 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 through 10. Those who desire to be rich, that's greed, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now look at what he says in verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, so what he's writing this that what what does that mean? In Timothy's church there are rich Christians. People who are wealthy, people who have resources. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, even for Paul, the issue is not money or how much or how little money you have. The issue is with what your heart says about your money. If you struggle with greed, then what you want is more and more and more money because God is not your God, money is your God. But if you serve God, then the money is simply a tool and a resource that God has given you. Right? What did did I quote at the beginning from Mike DeYoung? Money is a terrible God, but a wonderful servant. And that's part of what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 8 and in 1 Timothy 6. And so just briefly, I I want to talk, how do we take steps to be generous? right? Because for some of us, there's a lot of heart work we need to do. If you struggle with greed, you need to get with the Lord and figure out why you struggle with greed and begin to unpack some of those things. And we're going to talk about that. But how do we practically, maybe some of us, we don't struggle with greed. We just, we recognize we're not being as generous as we need to. What does that look like? So I think one of the first things that you need to do is change how you use your money. We've we've talked about this advantage before, but think about how you would change your spending if you cut, these are just three examples, one Starbucks drink a week. If you did that for a week, $200 to $250 would be freed up in your budget, right? Some of you are like, I don't have $200 $250. You would if you cut a Starbucks drink. What if you cut one meal out per month? And this, I think, this number is kind of small, so you're eating at like Raising Cane's once a month for dinner, that's $450 to $500 per month that you would begin to save. What if you cut cable? If you cut cable, you would save $800 to $1,000 a year. I mean, that literally, these three things, which no one would say, I know some of you would say cable, but none of, we don't need all of these things, right? These are, these are you know, superfluous for us. This would be $1,500 to $2,000 a year. Most of us right now, if we're not budgeted for it, would not say we have $1,500 to $2,000 a year to be generous with. But if we begin to be active and proactive with our budget, we can create space to be generous with our resources. One of the other things that we talk about at Vintage is our generosity ladder. We talk about this with giving at Vintage because I think it's one of the most practical ways to think about beginning to give or taking steps to be generous, right? So for so many people at Vintage or just think generally about your life with generosity, you've never given before or you've never been generous before. So, the first step is to simply do it and begin, right? So, you take a first step to become a giver or to be generous. Then you begin to think about it okay, how can I do that occasionally? Where you don't necessarily have a plan, but maybe once every couple of months, once every three months, you might give a gift. You might be generous with your resources. Then you begin to get intentional. Intentionality means there's some sort of plan. At Vintage, when we talk about giving, that's maybe giving monthly 3%, 5%, 7% of your income, right? You're giving it monthly, and so it's, there's, it's planned in your life. It's intentional giving. Faithful, here at Vintage, we talk about that is I'm giving at least 10% of my income every, every paycheck. And that's where you're taking it up a step to say, I'm not only going to be intentional, but I'm going to be faithful in giving this 10%. And then lastly, and I would just say this, when I think about giving from the New Testament, this is what I think about. It's extravagant giving, that I give above and beyond 10%. Right? When we talk about 10%, that comes from the idea of tithing, right? Old Testament principles, you give 10%. I think the New Testament blows that out of the water, that what the New Testament wants us to practice, which is what I think Paul is teaching us in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is a lifestyle of generosity, why? He's gonna, we're going to see it next week when we look at the rest of 2 Corinthians 8. The example for our generosity is not found among us. It's not even, for the Corinthians, found with the Macedonians. It's found in Jesus, who gave up heaven to put on flesh that we who were poor might be spiritually rich. And so the New Testament, listen, when it talks about, gener- when it talks about giving, It's saying, nothing is yours, right? We just looked at that. Nothing is yours. Everything is God's. Therefore, be generous with it. But for some of us, when we think about generosity, we need to take active steps to be generous. If you've never been generous before or you've never cultivated a life of generosity, you're not going to be able to wake up tomorrow morning and just begin to be generous probably because all of your resources are somewhere else. And you're going to have to begin to take active steps to practice generosity. God prospers us not for greed, but for generosity. Lastly, what does it mean to prosper? Prosperity is first and foremost our response to God's grace. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 5. And this, not as we expected. So Paul wasn't even expecting this, right? He had asked the Macedonians... To be a part of this offering. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to who? To who? It's up here on the screen. To who? (laughs) To the Lord. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul was the one who had asked for them to be a part of this collection. But they took this so seriously that they said, listen, we're not giving to you, Paul. We're not even necessarily at first giving to these churches in Jerusalem. The Lord has called us to this type of generosity. And this is who we're giving to first and foremost. Why? Go back to verse one. Who allowed them to be prosperous? Who allowed them to be generous? God. Generosity is first and foremost a response to God because everything is God's to begin with. Everything. So as you think about your giving, I want to encourage you to think about why you do not give, why you do not practice generosity, and at the same time, why you do give. Three things that I thought about this week. Number one, why do you not give? Discontentment perhaps some of the reason that you're struggling to give is because of greed. And you're trying to keep up. You're trying to look better. You're trying to look like you have a lot of money. You're discontent with what the Lord has given you. Number two, and this is a reality for most of us in this room, debt. Raise your hand if you're in debt. I'm kidding. No. (laughs) Some of you are bold. I saw that hand. Right. We don't want to admit that. And debt, whether we like it or not, is a hindrance to our generosity. Again, shameless plug, come to the Equip Night, September 17th, you're going to hear a lot about that. But we've got to deal with our debt. Third, disorganization, right? Part of the reason sometimes that we're not generous is we don't even have a budget. And so we're spending our money willy-nilly, who cares what we do, and then we come to the end of the month and we're like, man, I wish I had another $100 to give the church, or I wish I could take that person out to... to to eat. And you can't because you've been disorganized with your budget. So some reasons why we don't give, why do we give? And this question, listen, is just as important as the previous question, because you can give for the wrong reasons. If you give to make yourself feel better, is that what Paul says is the reason to give? No. No. Do you give for others? And listen, it's important. Paul is wanting them to give for the church at Jerusalem. But the ultimate reason we give isn't for others either. Ultimately, the reason we give is for God. Because it's first and foremost an act of worship because of his grace given to us. Because he owns everything. He has everything. God prospers us not for greed but for generosity. As we close, I want to encourage you with a few takeaways, things to consider this week regarding giving. Number one, thank God for his generosity. Right? Everything that you have, your money, your house, your car, your food, life, is because God has been generous to you. He's extended his grace to you. And so one of the most important things that we can do is thank God for that generosity. That's why we worship God. That's why he, part of the reason he deserves our praise. Number two, check your heart. If you struggle with greed, you've got to deal with that. Because stuff has become the God you worship and not the God who deserves your worship. And before... You ever can become generous, you've got to deal with the greed that's in your heart. Number three, take steps to become generous. Some of you desire to be generous, but you're not quite there yet because you're disorganized or you're dealing with debt or whatever's going on in your life. So just think about one practical next step you can take today to begin practicing generosity tomorrow. And lastly, give generously. Some of us are ready now to be generous with our money, now to be generous with our time, now to be generous with our energy. How can we live lives of generosity where we recognize every single thing we've been given comes from God, and because of that, we're not owners but managers. God has prospered us not for greed, but for generosity. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we are beyond thankful for your generosity in our own lives. God, for the grace that we have found in the Lord Jesus in saving us, in restoring our relationship with you, God, to the the food we eat, to the breath we breathe, God, every single thing we have is a good gift from you. So help us to thank you, God. God, for our hearts, I pray that every single one of us would take a look at our hearts. And if we're struggling and dealing with greed, God, that we would deal with that, that we would recognize that money is a terrible God, but a wonderful servant. And for every single one of us in this room, God, help us to live lives of generosity. Because it is your money, it is your resource, it is your life, God, that you've given us to steward. And so help us now, Father, as we respond to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.